Welcome. Uh, I'm Elliot Gerson of the Aspen Institute. I'd like to welcome you all to our pre-opening opening, and it's going to be a terrific one. Uh, we have three very distinguished uh, folks on, uh, on our stage uh, moderating, but I've asked David Gergen to be moderator plus, so he will also participate, not just as a questioner, because I'm sure we'll all be interested in his observations on this important topic uh, about the financial crisis and whether it signals the decline of the United States. David Gergen, of course, is the director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard School of Government. He's also been advisor to, advisor to presidents recent and I think forever, and of course very familiar to all of you as a commentator on CNN. Uh, with him, uh, Neil Ferguson, uh, professor at Harvard College, Harvard Business School, posts at Stanford, Oxford, and at least another dozen universities around the world, economic historian, polymath, and recently an indentured servant of the Aspen Institute, as he has been, he has been doing many, many things for us, and we're delighted to have him here. And a recent addition, for those of you who just looked at the earlier programs and not the updates, which is a reminder to always look at updates, we are delighted to add to this, pan to this panel uh, Mort Zuckerman, a former trustee of this institute, of course, distinguished editor, publisher, co-founder and CEO of Boston Properties. And so we are all in for a treat. I give it over to you, David. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being here in what I think will be a scintillating, provocative, and perhaps occasionally frustrating uh, hour, uh, because I hope we can stir up some conversation. Uh, I must tell you that when Kitty Boone called me uh, some months ago and said, uh, when you come to Aspen, what would you like to do? And then she rattled off some of the people who were coming. I said, my ideal situation would be to have a chance to sit down and engage Neil Ferguson in a conversation about the financial crisis and the potential decline of America, because I think no one in the world has written more provocatively and more profoundly about those questions uh, in recent years. And so that came about, and then a few days ago she called me and said, guess what? Uh, Mort's coming to Aspen. I said, do you think we can get him on the panel with Neil? And she said, I think we can make that work. And so uh, I'm so, and I, I'm so delighted about that because Neil brings the broad sweep of history uh, to, this, to this conversation. Mort brings uh, the understanding of someone who's in the arena and has to fight with these questions every day and has also become a major voice along with Neil in the Financial Times both of them writing the Financial Times. Mort's been writing in the Wall Street Journal and I think has really uh, become an incredibly important voice. Mort has in recent uh, times uh, uh, for this. I should tell you, uh, if he, we've been together for some 25 years. He was, he's been my boss, he's been my benefactor, and he's been my friend. So Mort, I, I appreciate you joining you. Uh, this conversation. Now, just uh, by way of background, they have a, a few things in common. Uh, they both like to uh, poke uh, at sacred cows. In fact, sometimes I've been known to use two-by-fours. Uh, <laughs> they're both contrarians. Uh, they are both known for having a somewhat darker view of what we have been going through here recently and where it is leading us. Uh, they appeared recently with Fareed Zakaria, uh, um, with, uh, it was Rubini, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Nouriel Rubini. Nouriel Rubini, the economist. And, and someone said after, afterwards, they were the three horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> uh, but uh, please know 
that they have been far more right than wrong, and that is what makes them so important for this conversation. And finally, it's, I think, worth noting that both of them uh, grew up and had their formative years in other countries. Mort grew up in Canada before coming to the United States. Uh, Neil grew up in the UK, first in Scotland, came, was educated in the UK before coming to the United States. And we know from long history, stretching back to the Tocqueville and others, that people who come to these shores from uh, to, to this, these shores from other countries often have a fresh view. They often see things in a different way that helps those of us who are native-born understand. Uh, and they, and when, while they may often be critical, they also bring to the conversation, as people come to these shores so often do, a certain powerful affection and deep love for the country and what the hope for America is. And I think as you listen to them today, please understand that their views come spring from that. <coughs> Uh, because I think it's important to shaping the conversation and our understanding of it. So, Neil, let me start with you. Um, give us your, if you would, the essence of your argument about uh, the financial health of nations, what they do in, as a mainspring for their, for their development, their growth, and also how the, the lack of financial health can bring them down. Well, thanks very much, David. Let me just say what a great pleasure it is uh, to be here at Aspen for the kickoff of the ideas uh, festival. I hope it's not like the World Cup when uh, the worst games are at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and the British get knocked out early on. <laughs> uh, Walter Isaacson, who leads this great institution, said, don't be too dark. Uh, and, I, I, and I intend not to be. Uh, Joe Nye and I have spent the last three days uh, in very good company, also with uh, Ayan Hersi Ali teaching uh, a seminar, Socrates Seminars, uh, which is a wonderful part of what the Aspen Institute does. And uh, Joe and I joined forces this morning. We put our seminars together for a grand finale. And Joe got me uh, with uh, a beautiful uh, sucker punch when he observed that I'm not the first uh, British historian uh, to come to the United States and warn of impending decline. Uh, some of you may recall Paul Kennedy uh, doing this in his great uh, masterpiece, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, uh, which had many strengths as a work of history, but uh, its concluding uh, prognosis that the U.S. was heading for uh, the situation of Louis XVI's France and, uh, and West Germany, as it then was in Japan, was set to inherit the earth, doesn't look so good. In fact, it didn't look terribly good just two years after its publication in 1989 <laughs> when the entire Soviet empire began to unravel. So uh, British historians have been wrong about this stuff uh, before, uh, but as I said uh, to, to Joe in response, a sample size of two is not really huge uh, for, <laughs> for making any kind of social scientific uh, uh, assessment. Uh, let me put this in some kind of perspective. I'm a financial historian by training, but I also teach a course at Harvard with the grandiose title Western Ascendancy, Mainsprings of Global Power. And one of my great concerns in teaching that course, which is a general education course aimed at all undergraduates, is to ask why it was that after around 1490, completely against what anybody at the time would have expected, a small uh, group of pretty uh, impoverished and fractious kingdoms uh, on the western end of Eurasia in Europe ended up taking over the world. And the great oriental empires, uh, not least uh, Ming China, stagnated and were ultimately subordinated. The, the question I posed to my class last year was, have we arrived at the end point 
of, say, half a millennium of Western predominance. And is that one of these historical changes so huge that we just can't get our hands, heads around it? My working assumption, I'll keep this brief, is that the financial crisis that began in the summer of 2007, happy birthday, financial crisis, uh, that has accelerated a fundamental shift in the economic balance of power. Even before the crisis, Jim O'Neill and his team at Goldman Sachs were forecasting that China's gross domestic product would exceed that of the United States in 2027, at half past four on October the 15th. <laughs> which is just a little <laughs> pinch of salt to remind you that all such projections need to be taken with a pinch of salt. Still, uh, whether it's 2027, 28, 29 or 30, the interesting thing is that the first time they made that uh, projection, they thought it would be 2040. <coughs> and I've, every time I see Jim, I say, uh, have you moved the date forward yet? Because he made that 2027 call before the financial crisis. The financial crisis unquestionably has hit the United States much harder than China. Their stimulus worked much better than ours. Uh, for reasons I'm happy to discuss in the discussion. But the first point I just want to put out there is it's hard to believe under these circumstances that the acceleration, that the shift, if you like, from West to East hasn't been speeded up uh, by this crisis. The second point is uh, that, of course, power is not just about GDP. It's not just about the economy. Uh, power is also about the ability to project hard power through military means. And some people in Washington like to console themselves by saying, we can still do that way more than they can. Count their aircraft carriers, count ours. But one point that follows from the financial crisis, which is terribly, ter terribly important, is that by combating our crisis of private debt with an extraordinary expansion of public debt, we inevitably are going to reduce the resources available for national security in the years ahead. Because as a debt grows, so the interest payments you have to make on it grow, even if interest rates stay low. And on uh, current projections, the federal debt is going to be absorbing around 20%, a fifth of all the taxes you pay within just a few years. Uh, the item of discretionary federal expenditure most likely to be squeezed is, of course, defense. And there are lots of historic precedents for that. So I fear that the financial crisis doesn't just impact on the economy, it actually impacts on American power in the hardest sense. Third and p penultimate point, the legitimacy of the American way, of what Francis Fukuyama and others confidently in 1989 called liberal capitalism or capitalist democracy, has been fundamentally called into question by this crisis. I've just come back from China, had a two-week trip there. The thing I heard most often was, you can't lecture us about the superiority of your system anymore. We don't need to learn anything from you about financial institutions and forget about democracy. We see where it's got you. We have lost an extraordinarily important component of power in this crisis, the power to pontificate, the power to talk about things like the Washington Consensus. Who now uses the phrase Washington Consensus with a straight face? So China is gaining. And of course, it has in the process gained a very important kind of leverage through what I've called Chimerica as a huge source of capital financing the U.S. current account deficit. It now holds 10%, one-tenth of the entire federal debt in public hands. That is a lever. It's an important form of power 
it's financial power. This is my segue to more. And this is my, my light moment. <laughs> I promised you lightness. Unlike Britain in 1945, which was crushed by debt and slow growth, doomed to imperial decline, I think there is a way out for the United States. I don't think it's over. But it all hinges on whether you can re-energize the real mainsprings, mainsprings of American power. And those two things are innovation, technological innovation, and entrepreneurship. Those are the things that made the United States the greatest economy in the world. And the critical question is, are we going to get it right? Can we revive those things in such a way that in the end, we grow our way out of this hole the way the United States grew its way out of the 1970s and, of course, out of the 1930s? Over to you, Mort. <laughs> Well, I'm delighted to be here, and I don't know why I'm reminded of that wonderful distinction between an optimist and a pessimist. An optimist, they say, thinks this is the best of all possible worlds, and a pessimist fears he may be right. <laughs> now, uh, let me just say that uh, while I have been, frankly, pessimistic about public policy, I am much less pessimistic about the culture of America, its pragmatism, its entrepreneurialism, its flexibility, its adaptability, and I believe that is particularly true of the business world, the private sector of America. And this, it seems to me, is still a great strength of America, and I think following upon what Neil just said, something that I believe has not gone. It doesn't mean that we haven't slowed down in various ways, but it has not gone. And we do have here a value that is given to individualism, entrepreneurial pragmatism, novelty, you name it. Uh, we, we honor mavericks and people who come up with new ideas, and we're open to that in many, many ways, just as a matter of culture, but it is particularly true of the business world. And the management culture that we have in business, I think, is really quite remarkable. Uh, it developed originally out of the vast distances that America represented to anybody in business where you had to find a way to deal with a huge market of uh, many different varieties of people and you had to develop a system for appealing to that larger market. Secondly, we did concentrate in terms of how we did business on contract and law rather than kinship and custom. And that has really made it much more rational a process for us. And we've also, I think, use numbers and statistics as a way of evaluating business decisions to a degree that is unparalleled in the rest of the world. So I think that there are certain very critical elements that the business community still maintains. I'm not saying it is perfect, um, but it still is, in my judgment, the, the activity that still attracts the talented people, the young people, to go into it. Um, we are, without question, in a decline at this stage of the game in the business world and for all kinds of reasons, especially in the world of finance. Uh, but I would also point out to you that uh, if you look at the history of the United States over the last half dozen years, and I believe it'll come back fairly soon, you think of the number of, sm of startups that we have, of small businesses that get started. That is a reflection of uh, an entrepreneurial culture and a business culture that I think has often enabled those smaller companies to grow into medium-sized and larger companies. And just look about Look at what has happened where we've absorbed technology and great management skills, whether it's companies like Google to use a, or Apple, for example, where somebody went in and redid that whole company in, a, in an amazingly short period of time, and it's become a, a hugely dominant company in terms of uh, the, the modern technologies. Now, uh, what I'm saying is we, because of this culture, we are better suited 
to a rapidly changing, a knowledge-based kind of economy than almost any other country in the world. And I think this is going to suit us well, um, if not in the short run, um, when we get through this, and we will get through it, not without a great deal of cost, uh, but I think that will provide the basis for us to continue going forward. I would add to that, by the way, that comparative advantage is paralleled by what I would call finance capital. I mean, there, is not, uh, there isn't kind of an elite group of institutions uh, really run by elites that, in a sense, determine the allocation of capital. You have a huge array of different kinds of financial uh, companies and, and institutions um, that provide capital for these startups um, and for companies that get to slightly higher level than a startup, but they're open to new ideas and new concepts and new business strategies. And anybody who's been through the IPO process, which I have happened to be, it's really quite remarkable. You do get vetted by some kind of an investment bank or another, but then you go around and you meet literally hundreds of different people rep representing different pools of capital, and you have to explain to them what your product is, what your business strategy is, and in some way, you have to uh, persuade them that you may be able to execute that. If I may do this, um, it, when our, my, the company that I'm associated with went public the first time, um, we had uh, two investment bankers, and they fought over who was going to introduce us uh, to a group of New York investors. It was a huge fight. And finally, we were able to, sell it, to settle it by saying, well, you introduce the company, I said to one, and the other one will introduce the, the persons. I was the speaker to this group. And after the two of them made those introductions, I got up there, it was a group as, at least as large as this, and I said, those two introductions cost us $28 million. <laughs> now, that's all I had to say. I mean, I have to tell you, everybody got what it was about. I mean, there is a kind of openness in this country uh, to uh, a, a degree of, of um, new ideas, new talent, uh, uh, that I think is really unique in the world, and I think it will suit us well in competitive terms over time. And there are now so many different places to go to for money to fund these new ideas that I think we will recover the energy that uh, we frankly have uh, lost in the last year or 18 months, which uh, I think uh, is still a burden on, on everybody in the business world. But the real problem, I think, for the business world, and this may kill um, everything that I'm saying, frankly, is, in a sense, implicit in what Neil was referring to. We really have, I think, some of the worst public policies in place today that, in my judgment, go directly against the long-term interests of the country. They may serve short-term political interests of people who are in office, but they do not serve the long-term interests. And there is a hostility to the very kinds of culture that I think uh, have made America the, the great country that it is uh, and was, particularly uh, uh, given the energy that the business world gives to the whole economy. And I think we have to find some way of dealing with that, or else we can really do great damage to this country. I will just say this. Um, I do think that uh, both at the level of American business and in the private sector, at the level of American workers, they understand that we are in a very competitive environment. And I think they are very flexible in their response to it. It is less true of public service workers, but it is certainly true of private uh, sector workers. So in that sense, on the private sector, I actually remain quite optimistic. My real concern is implicit in what, as I said, Neil does, that public policy could drown everything. And this is where I think we're going to come closer to the edge than I, I ever thought we would, and closer to the edge than I feel uncomfortable. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, both, both of you. The, uh, <clears throat> Morning, I'm actually heartened. That's the most optimistic I've heard you in the past two years. <laughs>
So let me, um, I'd like to sort of divide our conversation into three parts if I could. You've covered a lot of it. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the threat of decline, what the consequences of that would be for the U.S. and the world, and then a bit more about prescriptions and then open it up to you all from the floor. So I want to come back, uh, Neil, to, uh, to the argument itself. You and um, uh, Ken Rogoff, who just wrote this, co-authored this book about uh, financial disasters, uh, seem to be on the same page in that his argument and your argument is financial disasters almost inevitably over time, over, over historical sweep of time, have led to fiscal disasters, and they in turn have weakened the countries where those disasters have taken place. That's, that's the essential right. argument. Now, uh, and, and you've recently written something that was in, in foreign affairs that was quite interesting, and that is that contrary to conventional wisdom, uh, established major nations, especially empires, have collapsed much more quickly than anybody assumed. Uh, we thought the Roman Empire took hundreds of years. You make the argument that most empires have, have collapsed within a generation. Are we facing that kind of situation here where if we do go into decline, it could happen much more rapidly than we think? Well, this is a very important point, David, because many, I think many Americans, particularly many American politicians, console themselves that there may be a problem, but it's sort of a problem for 2030 or 2040 or 2050, and therefore it can be kicked clear of the next election cycle, and we don't need to worry. Right. And after all, empires decline over periods of, of hundreds of years. The, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon's masterpiece, actually covers about a thousand years, which is, you know, a reassuring time frame if it's decline that you're worried about. <laughs> but the point I tried to make in this essay in yeah. Foreign Affairs, Complexity and Collapse, is that in fact most empires c collapse fast. Uh, they're complex systems, they exist on the edge of chaos, uh, to use some rather technical terms, uh, and it doesn't take terribly much to tip them over, and when they're tipped over, they fall apart really quickly. Why, why should we doubt this? We saw it happen to the Soviet Union, uh, which collapsed in an extraordinarily short space of time. And although we think of the Roman Empire's decline as a protracted process, frankly, uh, it really happened in a very short space of time, around a generation in the early 5th century, uh, uh, particularly if one focuses on the Western Empire. So I give a whole bunch of examples to, to back this uh, hypothesis up, but one of the, the payoff lines is that if you really want to see when an empire is getting vulnerable, and I know you're not comfortable with the word empire, especially just after 4th of July, but <laughs> you are the Redcoats now. <laughs> so the big giveaway is when the costs of servicing the debt exceed the costs of the defense budget. Uh, now, that has not been the case, I think, at any point in, in, in U.S. history. It will be the case in the next five years. Uh, and that's a really interesting tipping point that checks out when you look at, oh, I don't know, 18th century France, which absolutely fell apart because of a debt crisis. Complete inability to finance uh, royal debt, which, which went critical in the 1780s. So for me, the nightmare is that the political class in this country, with its two to four year time horizon, thinks this is a problem, you know, whether it's Medicare or Social Security, they think this is a problem for the next generation of politicians. Whereas I think this is a problem that is going to go live really soon. Uh, and in that sense, I mean within the next two years, because the whole thing, fiscally and in other ways, is very near the edge of chaos. And uh, we've seen already in, in Greece what happens when the bond market loses faith in your fiscal policy. 
Tell us a little bit more about the relationship of the complexity theory, because this is so interesting. Walter's arranged another seminar, or, or one of the big panels here, is about the relationship of complexity theory with Mary, Mary Gilman with the cancer research and the kind of progress has been made using complexity theory. And you've applied complexity theory to international affairs and the strength of nations. It, it's actually like an anthill. If you pull something out, the whole thing can start going down very fast. That, that's your sense of it. Exactly. So, I mean, complexity exists in all kinds of different uh, forms, shapes, and sizes. A, a termite hill is a complex system. The human nervous system is actually a, a complex system. If you, uh, if you talk to some uh, biologists, uh, a rainforest is a complex system. Now, what these things have in common is that they look like they're in equilibrium, but they're not. They're actually constantly adapting, uh, highly decentralized, uh, interdependent systems, uh, and this process of adaptation can continue for really quite a long time. And you think to yourself when you look at it, wow, that's in a wonderful equilibrium. That's how we think about the economy. That is, in fact, how economists teach economics. They, they talk about it in terms of equilibrium. The bad news is, folks, that in fact, we inhabit a complex system that has virtually nothing to do with the neoclassical models that you were all taught in Econ 101. And that's why the economists totally failed to predict the financial crisis. The financial crisis was a product of complexity in the financial system, both in the, the conventional sense of complexity and in the technical sense. So for me, American power, if you generalize beyond the realm of finance through the geopolitical system, is a perfect example of a highly complex system, which looks like it's in equilibrium, but like all the great empires, all the great powers of the past, is in fact quite close to the edge of chaos. And our nightmare scenario should be that something happens to us like happened to the Soviet Union. For completely different reasons, in a completely different form, it suddenly just falls apart. And I think that the trigger, the catalyst, if you want to switch to chaos theory, the butterfly in the, in the tropical rainforest that flaps its wings and causes the distant thunderstorm, is probably going to be the credibility of fiscal policy. That just seems to me like the obvious place uh, where things can turn nasty. And they turn nasty with amazing speed in that, in that area. Well, we saw that with subprimes. Right. When they went bad, everything else started moving after that. And for me, that yeah. was a great learning yeah. experience, David, and I guess also but for more, because yeah. we, uh, we were among the very That's small right. number of people who sort of saw this coming, right. but the group think said, it's not going to happen. But there's something going on today in this country that I think is quite heartening. Whatever the political people may think, there is a, a, a growing unease in the public at large about the debt that this country has taken on. Now, I, I myself attribute it to the fact, as much as anything else, that when people have a mortgage on a home that they can't service, and the home is now worth less than the mortgage, and they have credit card lines that they can't afford, they suddenly realize that debt means something. And so there is now, I think, an, a, a much, a very rapidly growing public support for the idea of trying to get our deficits and our debts under control. And I, I do think I agree with everything you're saying, except I'm heartened. I never thought I would be the optimistic person in this dialogue, but there you are. I really am heartened by the reaction of the American public to all of this. It is really becoming, and I think it will be, a huge factor, not only in the elections uh, in November, but in the presidential election going is, forward. Is Paul Krugman wrong? Or is there some element of Paul Krugman saying, wait a minute, of course we've got a debt problem, but you've got, you've got a ton of people unemployed. You're cutting off unemployment benefits. There are a lot of people suffering. You need in the short term to stimulate. You need to continue to stimulus and then get to your debt. Why, what's wrong with that argument? Well, um, those short-term 
decisions become long-term commitments over time because we are not at this stage of the game in a position where we can afford to solve our economic problems through that kind of policy, in my judgment. And I supported the stimulus program. In fact, I thought the stimulus program, well, it's lost a lot of credibility. If the $800 billion had as little an effect on the economy as it turned out to have, it's no wonder that it's lost the confidence of the American public. But that's because it was, in my judgment, not only not large enough, but very wrongly uh, uh, structured. Uh, it wasn't going to have the effect from day one, and I wrote that, and I, I, I mean, I still don't understand why they did it. But you've been in favor of an infrastructure stimulus. Oh, absolutely, effort. because there's something to show for it at the end. What is more, the jobs that are created or the dollars that are invested in infrastructure have at least a 1.5 to a 1.75% multiplier effect in terms of the jobs they create, and you have something at the end of it that is actually quite valuable for the overall functioning of your economy and society. Whereas you've written that multiplier effect here in the stimulus was... Virtually non-existent. What is this stimulus? It was really disappointingly low. And of course, the counterexample is China's stimulus, uh, which was comparable exactly. in, in magnitude in terms of dollars, bigger in relation, of course, to their economy, mm. but so much better executed uh, that it much more quickly went into infrastructure and job creation. I mean, if you look at the numbers, China dodged an immensely large flying bullet. Th their exports collapsed, and we all assumed that they had an export-led growth model, and therefore they were toast. It didn't happen, and it didn't happen because they responded with tremendous speed uh, with a very, very successful stimulus. Ours was a disappointment by comparison. I mean, I think the, the Krugman-Ferguson debate, which got extremely nasty last year and still rumbles along, uh, is really a debate about timing, actually. Uh, and I've never said we need to uh, balance the budget in 2010, or for that matter, 2009. That, that was never an option. The critical point, though, is that if your policy says you're going to run a trillion-dollar deficit every year for the rest of time, right. which is U.S. fiscal policy right, right now, right. you're riding for a fall. Right. And that fall will at some point take the form of a surge in your bond yields, your borrowing costs, and then really it is goodbye. Yep. Mort, let me come back to you about two other drivers of, uh, of a nation and, and ask you where we are with them. Uh, one is uh, the, the Andy Grove argument we, we talked about just before we came out here, who's just written a piece saying, look, uh, Tom Friedman and others have been arguing Innovation, startup are really critical. But Grove's argument is our problem isn't startups. We still have a great number of startups. Our problem is scaling the startups uh, so that they, they create jobs here. What's happening is that we have startups that are taking, once, once they start growing, create the jobs elsewhere and are not creating the jobs here. Intel, which he built, you know, created jobs here. The, the, we had Google that created jobs. Microsoft created jobs here. But the new startups increasingly are shipping their jobs or creating the jobs and even the R&D overseas. They get started here, take solar panels. We invented solar panels. The jobs are outside this country now. So the question is, how do we deal with that? If a country doesn't have a core of jobs and people working, how do we, in fact, stay a great country? Well, I, I think implicit in that is the fact that we have no public policy to deal with some of those issues. The largest bleeding out of jobs, in fact, has been in the area of technology and manufacturing and technology. Now, there are ways of addressing those issues, and it requires public policy. For example, and these have been suggested, not that they have been adopted, one of the great advantages of, of, of building uh, plants in overseas is you, they really have organized all the land and all the permits and all the approvals that you need so that you can move very quickly to build the facilities you need. We have nothing like that in this country, and we should and could do that. There's just, there are very large-scale industrial parks, which we've done very often. We just have not done that and prepared for exactly that concern. Secondly, uh, I would add one other thing, and I, I must say this is the one that just drives me around the bend. Uh, we had 195,000 H-1B visas, as they were called, for people who are really talented and, and, and well-educated to work in this country. 
they were reduced to 65,000 as a result of a particular, uh, shall we say, organized group of people uh, who were trying to protect their jobs. Um, and we're down to 65,000. But intellectual capital, in my judgment, and is implicit in what Neil is saying, is as important as financial capital. And we are sending people who, who get, I mean, almost a majority of the students who are in the hard sciences and get MAs and PhDs in the hard sciences are foreign students. We send them out of the country. We won't let them work in the country. They work for companies that compete with us and countries that compete with us. That's just public policy insanity. And what, what distresses me, and it's implicit in the, the risk that I think Neil uh, properly underlines, is if we have a political leadership that only takes short-term concerns into account, we're going to get our, dig, dig ourselves a, a much deeper hole. These are policies that at some point, I believe, some public figures can and should emerge to deal with them. They're not impossible to resolve. And th that, that's why I think we, we do have a fundamental problem. It's a public policy problem more than a private business problem. Is there also a related issue about education, the quality of education? that goes to the question of the mainsprings of, of, of great nations. Uh, the uh, colleagues uh, of yours, uh, Larry Katz and Claudia Golden, the labor economists, have written that the, a recent book that argues very strongly that it's the decline of American education relative to the rest of the world that may lead us into decline as a, as a nation. In the 1960s, America, in terms of the number of people who finished college, was, was number one in the world the number of people who went to college. In fact, we've been ahead of everybody else through most of our history. But since the 1960s, we've now become 15th in terms of the percentage of our students you know, finishing college. So my question to you, Neil, is, is that also something more very fundamental that over a longer period of time we have to solve as well? Without question, it's easy, of course, for us to sit at Harvard and feel tremendously smug and say, we are the best university in the world even if our endowment wasn't terribly cleverly managed. Uh, but the... Um, A different, different seminar. But the reality, uh, the, the reality uh, is that historically, educational institutions are a tremendously important component of power. From the very top, from the universities, right down to the very bottom. Prussia was a sandbox. It leapt forward in the 18th century through education. By the 19th century, Germany had the best universities in the world. Right into the 1920s, the Germans could look down their noses at Harvard and Yale because Tübingen and Heidelberg and the other great German universities were the ones where the Nobel Prizes were won. It's extremely easy to self-destruct educationally. The Germans did that. They did it on the basis of an insane racial ideology. But you can also destroy your universities. You can also destroy higher education in all sorts of more prosaic and banal ways. Uh, not the least of which might, if you take uh, our current situation, be that because of massive financial disruptions to endowments, funding for hard science simply gets cut off. And at the other end of the scale, what really troubles me is the quality of mathematical education in this country, uh, particularly in high school. Uh, this has been a problem for years and years and years. Uh, the attainment scores in Asia compared with uh, the entire English-speaking world are just wildly better. Uh, and if that isn't a problem, waiting to manifest itself in a fundamental divergence uh, in terms of power as well as in terms of cultural capability and innovation, I don't know what is. We could obviously go on with this. I want to move to slightly, uh, but I want to move to a different area and then open this up because we'll get to prescriptions when we open it up. I, I want to know what difference it makes to the U.S. and to the world 
if we move from a, a, a U.S. as a hegemonic power or a superpower or an empire, as you may want to call it, to one in which we no longer are. And you've said it may become an apolar world. You argued that in some of your writing. It could be an apolar world. There's no superpower. Or it could be one in which China becomes ascendant. Which of those is more likely, and what difference does it make to the United States? What difference does it make to the world? I'd be curious about what, okay, so if we do go into climate, what difference does it make? I, mean, I think we need to flesh that out. What would life be like? Well, first of all, can I just say that having grown up in a declining empire, I, I do not recommend it uh, as a, a route to go down. It's just not a lot of fun, actually, uh, decline. Um, and to be more, more serious, a world in which the United States is no longer predominant uh, is not likely to be a better world, actually. Now, of course, there are people, sometimes to be found in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that would like nothing better than for American power to vanish from the scene because of all the innumerable war crimes committed by uh, American uh, presidents and secretaries of state since time immemorial. But I'm not, I'm not sure how many people of that mind there are in this room. But my view, and I've said this not only to ultra-liberals in the United States but also to their counterparts in Europe, is be careful what you wish for. A world without a strong America is a dangerous world. It is, for example, a world, and this is in the near future, by the way, in which the greater Middle East spirals out of control. The United States has been the dominant power in the Middle East since the 1970s. The loss of that dominance would be an open invitation for radical Islamists uh, to uh, unleash and, and, and realize their visions of a new caliphate. Uh, do not underestimate that as a potential threat. Now, whether it's an apolar world in which nobody really controls anything, or as seems increasingly likely, a world in which a new empire emerges, and I think I have China in mind here, I don't see the outcome as really particularly attractive. I think we're all more invested in American power, and I say we're all including people in the rest of the world, than we may realize. And in the absence of great power, in the absence of the kind of civilization that it creates, you can find yourself in a dark age. That's what happened after Rome. Very interesting to look at what happened in the 5th century. When the Roman Empire in the West collapsed, civilization collapsed. There's some wonderful books like Brian Ward Perkins's On the Collapse of Rome that are well worth reading for this reason. Uh, that is indeed why I keep banging on about the speed with, with which things can unravel. Uh, because I'm not just talking here about, oh, I don't know, the lofty concepts of international relations. I'm talking about how your daily life is affected. What happens when the aqueducts stop working, metaphorically? You know, what happens when the roads are no longer maintained? That's what happened in the post-Roman world. And I don't think that the post-American world would be so very different. More? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what we're, I think, all in agreement on, at least up here, is that there are much greater risks inherent in uh, the future direction of the United States than there has been for a long time. And, of course, it was provoked by this enormous financial collapse. But I also have to say, and again, I, just to go back to the university training, uh, a great part of what we're talking about, I think, relates to the economy of this country versus other countries. We have by far and away the best business schools and the best undergraduate business schools uh, in, the, in the world. We, do, we are, I, I mean, MBAs are one thing, PhDs in the sciences are another. I don't want to dismiss the latter, but I'm just saying that we still have a lot of great advantages. We have a society in which we are, much, we are very open to learning, very open to ad adapting to new uh, concepts and new knowledge, much to a much greater degree than most other countries. This is by far, uh, in no way is this a hopeless situation, but it is going to require something to a degree that we have 
I frankly, as a country, not really begun to think about until what's been going on in the last 18 months, which is a financial collapse, at which point I think people are beginning to realize that public policy does make a huge difference. And I hope that people in this country are aware of it. And as I say, I think they are aware of it to the extent that they are beginning to realize, hey, these, this deficit and this debt that we are accumulating really can have consequences for us. So I, in this sense, feel that this is still a country that learns and learns in practical terms, and it's very adaptable. So I suspect that somehow or other over the next short number of years, I hope, that we do begin to make the necessary adjustments and get back into a different kind of balance and begin to address the issues that can only be led by wise public policy. Great. Thank you. Let's open this up. All right. There are some roving microphones. There's a hand here. Uh, uh, yes. I, um, if you can come here, and there are a couple of hands up. How many microphones do we have? Two. If you, are there hands over here, just so there's somebody can help. Please give one to somebody that can be ready to go. And if your questions, uh, using the Joe Nye rules, if you can be fairly brief, uh, and every question ends with a question mark. Thank Very you. Brief. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who's first? Thank you. It was a wonderful presentation. I'd like to make a small statement here first and correct me. <laughs> brief. Brief. Uh, Neil, we had something called the Continental Dollar and uh, after the war with you. Uh, America became great by rewarding hard work and industriousness and penalizing laziness, but today we seem to be penalizing uh, hard work and rewarding laziness. I recently received a check for $250 for doing nothing from Uncle Sam. Capitalism creates, socialism distributes. Sure. Sure. Which way does the panel feel the U.S. is heading? Okay. What, what's the question now? Which, Which way? way is the U.S. heading? Yes. Well, it, it's, uh, it's actually a, a good question that, that you ask, sir, because uh, really it's about the direction of fiscal policy. Now, it's not as if the United States is about to become uh, a socialist state, but it is actually about to become a European state in the sense that the expansion of its, uh, of its welfare system and the increasing progressiveness of its taxation system uh, uh, is going to have the consequences we've already experienced in Western Europe. And one of those is already visible, which Mort knows as much about as anybody, and that is the curse of long-term unemployment. Yeah. If you pay people to do nothing, they'll find themselves doing nothing for very long periods of time. Long-term unemployment is at a, an all-time high in the United States, and it is a direct consequence of a misconceived public policy. I can't emphasize more strongly enough the need for radical fiscal reform to restore the incentives for work and to remove the incentives for idleness. There's, if there's one thing that would make a difference to this country, it is a really radical reform of the sort that, for example, Paul Ryan has outlined in his wonderful roadmap for a radical root and branch fiscal reform, not only of the tax system, but of the entitlement system. It's that kind of public policy change that can unleash Mort's entrepreneurial, innovative spirits and get the small and medium-sized businesses back to hiring. So I think you're asking the right question. Do you really want to be a kind of implicit part of the European Union? I advise you against it. I do, that's if you can bring a microphone here, please, to this, and you have the question. You have the floor. Stefan Edlis, is it on? You're on. Quick question. My short-term memory is not very good, but I do remember the year 2000, a mere 10 years ago, which is a blink of an eyelash, when we had a budget surplus of some $300 billion, and we had a curve that showed us that within 10 years, which is 2010, 
our deficit would be cut in half. My question is, what happened? More? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, how, much, how much time do we have? Look, what happened, uh, I think, is uh, that we have not only taken on a number of major public burdens in the way of additional public policies, but we had a major economic downturn that has affected the revenues of the federal government, the state governments, and the local governments. If you think the federal government's in trouble, just look at state and local governments. And we have not had the willingness to discipline our public policies to ref reflect what we are going to have to do, which is to find some way to introduce some kind of budget, budgetary and deficit uh, discipline into our macroeconomic picture and future. And I don't know if we're going to do that because our politics are frankly not helped uh, by, amongst other things, a, a, a very, very, very rabid uh, media on, that is polarized on either end of the political spectrum that makes for centrist dialogue and centrist policies possible. We're going to find out about what this country is made of at some point. And the, what, what Neil's absolutely right. We don't have all the time in the world, and if it happens, it's going to happen at an accelerated rate, and it'll happen very, very quickly. And we will all wonder, why didn't we act when we had the time to act? And, and I may add, the, the, the new thing that's happening is the baby boom population is starting to retire, right. and the costs on right. Medicare and Social Security are going to win right. like that. Social Security, uh, Medicare, Medicare. Let's see. I wanted to get a, a hand. There's a microphone over here. I want to get more women to the conversation. If you can find, a, if a hand can come over here for, from a woman, there's a, a gentleman here who has a, has a, yes, sir, you've got the mic. I agree with what you say about our education, and I agree with what you say about innovation and entrepreneurship. Now, how you just got back from China, and I read recently where they're graduating about 500,000 engineers annually. If you, only 5% of them are super excellent, how are we going to cope with that? Well, you're asking a crucial question. Uh, Farid Zakaria has, has uh, looked at this issue uh, in his recent book, The Post-American World, and, and he points out that there are quality issues in the mass production of, of engineers in China. But I don't think that gets away from the reality uh, that if you educate enough people in hard sciences and in the practical disciplines like engineering, uh, you just raise the probability of, uh, of having the breakthrough mind, of having the breakthrough discovery. Uh, and, and it seems to me that's really the way you should understand what Chinese educational policy is about. Uh, it, it's, it's like an enormous uh, bet uh, on those hard disciplines and also on hard work. You know what really impresses me uh, about Chinese education? It, it's not so much the volume of people being generated. It's a pretty populous country. It's the, the hours they work. It's the days they work. And I, you know, I have a 16-year-old son who's doing his first public exams in the UK this year. And I say to him, look, Felix, there are 150 or 200 Chinese boys your age, at least, who want the lifestyle you think you're entitled to, and they are working probably twice as hard as you right now. Do, do, do you really get that? Uh, this wasn't something that I, at 16, had to worry about, because when I was 16, China was still essentially closed off from the world economy. So it's not just about the, the quantity, it's also about the sheer intensity with which Chinese students work. Now, I sometimes hear it said rather complacently, oh, well, well, we're much more creative and American students are much better at questioning and thinking outside the box. I've bad news for you. My best students at Harvard are actually the Chinese students, the guys who are getting their A's in the examination questions and in the essays that I assigned on these Western ascendancy papers. They had names like Yin and Li. So we can't, we, we just must guard against the fatal complacency of thinking that we've somehow got an, an, a kind of God-given right 
to be smarter than everybody else. I don't, I don't buy that. I really don't. How about your son? Does he buy it? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's a question back here. And then if we can find our, there's a mic, there's a question up here. If we can bring the mic. If there's a question in the middle, we haven't moved that. And yes, there's a question back here. Please. Hi. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like you just to give us an explanation about why we have this high level of deficit and public debt, especially now, that, that as the former gentleman pointed out, we didn't have in the year 2000, and why we have it now. And the second thing is, what do you ex uh, suggest, each of you, what do you suggest we do about it? So here's a really simple answer. If you even strip out the Great Recession, uh, and even if you strip out the interest payments on the existing debt, because it's not like the debt disappeared even in 2000, the United States still has a primary deficit, to use the technical term, bigger than that of any developed economy. It's somewhere in the region of 7 to 8% of gross domestic product. By the Bank for International Settlements measures, the IMF measures, the US is almost in a uniquely bad fiscal situation. That is partly because of a structural imbalance between federal revenues and federal expenditures, which has widened over the years through a combination uh, of tax cuts, which I think were not entirely uh, merited when they were uh, in enacted. Uh, and I said that, incidentally, at the time during the Bush era. But also as a result of the expansion of entitlement programs. So there is a structural imbalance, point one. Point two, about half the current deficit is due simply to the collapse of revenues caused by the financial crisis. Uh, and finally, a part of it, and there's no denying this, is due to the fact that the United States is fighting two quite expensive quasi-colonial wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's why the deficit has exploded since 2000, in essence. What can we do about it? Well, uh, we can follow Paul Krugman's advice and just carry on uh, making it even bigger and hope for the best. Uh, that's not a strategy that I would recommend. Or we can enact the kind of radical fiscal reforms that Mort and I have been talking about that will galvanize the economy back into growth. And particularly, can we underline this three times in red, David? Get the private sector to create the jobs. If we aren't sending the signals to private sector companies to hire, whether it's through the tax system or through more general uh, parts of public policy, there's no way out of this hole. Let me, let me ask you this quick question, intervention. Does it make a difference what, what the, it, when we come to fiscal savings, when we try to get the, close down the deficit, does it make a difference what proportion, in terms of long-term growth and greatness as a nation, what proportion is, comes out of spending cuts versus tax increases? Now, there's, there's now a sort of an informal push in Washington toward a, a two-to-one, two, 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 uh, the, the spending cuts will be twice as big as the tax increases. Does it make a particular difference what that ratio is? It, it, if, if I may briefly say, it, it, it depends a lot on the taxes you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, if the ta remember the commitment the president made during the election was not to tax uh, practically the entire population except the, the wealthy elite. And he's right. very boxed in on that particular commitment. Uh, what's clear is that if you start putting on taxes uh, to the wealth creators, if you start piling on taxes also in corporations, remember corporation tax is very high in the United States, that is not likely to be beneficial. Uh, taxes that emphasize uh, consumption, that put, put, as it were, incentives to save rather than to consume are preferable, uh, but they need, of course, to be counteracted because they can be quite regressive. The spending cuts are preferable. 
There is a great deal of waste in the federal government. If you haven't encountered it personally, I don't know where you're living. <laughs> I'd love to know. Uh, and that seems to me to be the really, the really critical thing. Whatever we do, as we cut, we must incentivize the private sector. That's the critical thing that, for example, is not happening in Greece right now, but I think could be happening in the United Kingdom, uh, where there is something more of an uh, entrepreneurship encouraging budget. Uh, notice one of the things George Osborne did, uh, copy this America, he introduced a phased reduction in corporate tax so that businesses, particularly small businesses, over, over time will be paying less tax. That, yeah. that seems to me to be the right kind of thing to do. Mort, do you have a view on that? the political popularity of somebody who was willing to take a tough stance on the issue of fiscal balance. You look what's happened to the governor of New Jersey. I mean, it's really astonished a lot of people that he is as popular as he is, and he has taken on a lot of the quote-unquote special interests who have really uh, created this tremendous fiscal problem for the state of New Jersey. I do think that that is something that is growing in this country, and somebody who can present that properly and rationalize it, as Neil has just done, I think there is a growing sense of political support for that kind of of activity. Uh, 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 that is going to be, the, the, to, m to my mind, the critical uh, uh, factor as we look, as we go forward. Good. Where, where are the microphones now? Do, do, yes, yes, sir, please. Hi, Can we get another microphone moved into, over, into this area over here, please? Please. Uh, Stuart Grant, hi, Neil. Hello, Stuart. I've got a demographic question. Um, one of the reasons Paul Kennedy was wrong about Japan back when is they had a low fertility rate and quickly ran out of young people, could not replace them with robots, didn't accept immigrants, and uh, that was that. Meanwhile, we kept accepting immigrants and all our churchgoers like having children. And now China looks like it's about to go over the same demographic cliff. Do you take that into account? Question mark. Well done. <laughs> yes, exclamation mark. <laughs> In fact, part of what I was doing this morning was looking at the demographic uh, data for China uh, with, my, with my seminar colleagues. It's really interesting. I mean, they, they go from having a tiny negligible percentage of the population over 65 to having something like 16% uh, over 65 over the next uh, uh, 30 years or so. Uh, they're nowhere close to Japan. If you look at the numbers uh, for the major economies of the world, uh, things c could are projected by the UN to actually look quite, uh, quite good. Uh, because of immigration and, and fertility. They're dreadful for Europe. They're abysmal for, uh, uh, for Japan. Uh, China isn't heading for Japan. Uh, and, and I think the other critical point to remember about China, why, why I don't see this as an absolute killer for them, uh, is that these aging population issues are more of a problem if you've got a post-war welfare state uh, that, uh, that, in, that entails huge transfers from the working population to the ever larger pool of elderly. Chinese don't have that. Uh, and China is the kind of country where uh, it, it's actually quite conceivable that the elderly will just be very poor. Uh, so I don't think it's as, as, as lethal as it is as it was for Japan, uh, for China at this point. Final, in parenthesis point, uh, for India, this is great news. And I often say when I'm talking about the big Asian economies, it's the, it's the tortoise and the hare here. Uh, right now, India lags behind China for all kinds of reasons. But with the demographic uh, uh, difference, it is going to overtake uh, China in terms of its growth rate at some point in the next 20 or so years. And I, of course, like India because, as a former British colony, just like you... Uh, <laughs> They have representative government, the rule of law, and despite a great deal of red tape, actually, freedom. And freedom is the thing that we, I think, ought to try and conclude on. We, we, I think we are practically out of time. The big difference between China and the United States is not demographics. It's freedom. 
And as long as we have intellectual freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom to innovate, then I'm still an optimist about this country. Uh, but, you know, we do need these public policy incentives for freedom to turn in to jobs. And that is what it is currently not doing. Well, one more question. We have a, is a microphone here. I, I'm sorry, we can't. I knew there would be frustrations the, uh, because this, these guys are for Buck. Please. Uh, there's a question at the end of this, but there's a false premise that's being repeated, and that is that the surplus in 2000 um, was because of a good economic environment, but it was entirely due to the, uh, the taxation on the high-tech bubble and the related employment. Question, do you realistically believe there's any chance of reforming the financial system addressing the Treasury and the Federal Reserve, which seem very broken? Can you be a little more specific? <clears throat> yes, I think the Federal Reserve has aided and abetted the housing crisis, and clearly there doesn't seem to be a policy that's reactive. I'm just going to give you a, an amazing statistic. From the year 1890 to 1996, adjusted for inflation, housing prices went up by 27%. From the years 1998, excuse me, from the years 1998 to today, housing prices, when adjusted for inflation, went up by 91%. So something let that genie out of the bottle, and it's too complicated to go in now. But it is one of the things that we are going to have to do, which is to have some kind of monetary restraint as well as fiscal restraint in order to make this economy, to bring this economy back into a better balance than we are uh, anticipating now. There was a fundamental error of monetary policy at the Federal Reserve. Uh, there is a 1,300-page bill just about to be enacted into law uh, designed notionally to address problems of financial regulation. Uh, and most of it, frankly, is complete garbage, which doesn't remotely address the true causes of the financial crisis. Uh, a huge part of the financial crisis was an error of monetary policy, and it's monetary policy that needs to be reformed, more, I think, than the institution of the Federal Reserve itself. It's the theory that the Feds were working with that really went uh, terribly off the rails. We must let this gentleman catch a plane. He is due to speak at St. Paul's Cathedral tomorrow at 6 p.m. <laughs> on man morality. He didn't morality. get religion today. I don't know when he'll get it. <laughs> yeah, right. what, what is it, man morality? And what was it? What's the title of it? The, the title of my lecture in, of all places, London's great St. Paul's Cathedral, Christopher Wren's masterpiece, uh, is Men, Money, and Morality, Can We Restore Faith? in the financial system. Wish me luck. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark, your, your reaction to that? No, I think he can handle the first two uh, subjects. I'm worried about the last one. <laughs> <laughs> I, cannot, I, I cannot imagine a better way to, to open an Ideas Festival. I have so many ideas here. Thank you both very much. Thanks very much.